You are listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. And you know, if you've been tracking with us, that each week we're cracking open a new epistle and we are wrestling with it, not as much teaching it, but more honestly interacting with it, opening ourselves up to the text and digesting what it is that excites us, what offends us, confuses us, inspires us. And so if you think of each epistle as a puzzle, the goal is to actually go through the process of putting the puzzle together in real time, rather than to simply just show you what the finished product looks like. And it's been super fun. But if you're anything like me, the experience of doing a puzzle is that sometimes you're putting in five pieces a minute and it's all clicking, but sometimes you're stuck looking for one piece for like 45 minutes. And this conversation feels a little bit like the latter. We're talking about Galatians this week, and there was this one piece of the Galatians puzzle that some of us, cough, cough, me, cough, cough, just couldn't quite locate. And what was that piece? Well, it was trying to pinpoint exactly what Paul is saying to the Galatians about the law. It's just tricky. It's multi-layered and it can feel elusive, or at least it can to me. And so as you're listening to this episode, somewhere in the middle, you might be thinking, what are they talking about? Believe me, I get it, but keep listening. I think we do find the puzzle piece and it really does make the whole picture clearer. As always, please connect with us on our website, collegelifedavis.com, or on the College Life Davis app, wherever you get your apps. But for now, happy puzzling, everybody. Enjoy the pod. All right, everybody. Welcome back to your pod and your staff. This is the fifth episode of our little fall quarter season, which means with simple arithmetic, we are about halfway done with a quarter of podcast, which is crazy. And uh, it's been a fun one. Thank you for everyone who's been saying nice thoughts. Thanks for everyone who's been reading the scriptures with us. Stanford, today is a big day. That's right. Do you know why? I know why. You know why. Not everyone else knows why, unless, of course, they've read the episode description. But you remember that scene in Mighty Ducks 2? Have you seen the Mighty Ducks 2? We just showed it to our kids. Are you serious? That's right. This is perfect. The beginning of the movie, the kids are running around the neighborhood and they're screaming at their friends because the quack attack is back, Jack. That's right. right. Yeah. The quack attack is back, Jack, meaning the gang is getting back in town and they're blowing their duck whistles and they're running down the street because they could not be more thrilled to be back in town with their best, 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 best friends doing what they love, 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 love. And so we have the same experience this morning because, my friend, today we are joined in the Zoom studio by the clog wearing, vampire weekend loving, houseboat driving, former college life director, current friend and current resident of Washington State, Miriam Hamilton, back in the house. Hello, Miriam. Hello. Hey, Miriam. Oh, man, it is so good to be back. And I forgot what warm welcomes you always welcome everyone with. (laughs) (laughs) It's always an ego boost. Yeah, yeah. That was the warmest of welcomes I think I've given on a podcast, though. Mm, I'm honored. Yeah. But it's so good to see you. Oh, my goodness. It's so good to see you guys, even just over Zoom. I know, which was how it was for most of the end of your tenure here. That's (laughs) That's so true. You could just as well be in Davis. Exactly. (laughs) We started this little podcast journey, and this was sort of the original triumvirate. So it is fun to be back together. It feels sort of like we're 
at home. Mm-hmm. So Miriam, I want to know, we want to know, the masses want to know just how life has been for you. And so I asked you to tell us like three things to catch us up in the life of Miriam. And I told you I wanted one of those things just because I'm interested and we haven't had a, a ton of chances to catch up of just what was it like for you leaving Davis? Like you got in your Subaru and all packed up and started driving away. What did it feel like? What was going through your head? Well, first of all, it started right after Christian and Olivia, who are College Life alum, got married, which yeah. was very exciting. They got married in my hometown and I got to see their wedding, which you guys both know because you were both there, but not everybody That's else right. knows. Three of us. Uh, so it was a party. First and last time the three of us were in the same place in like months. Yeah. That's true. so true. <laughs> and then um, Parker and I got in my car and we started driving up and it was, you know, like very symbolic and meaningful. And also, like, mostly I was just thinking about how smoky it was. It was, like, from (laughs) Southern California. It was smoky. And then we got up to Davis. We were passing through on the 5. And Davis was like it had been for months or, like, a month at that point. Super smoky and hot. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Good thing I'm going up to Washington where it's never like this on the west side. (laughs) Au contraire. Au contraire. (laughs) Au contraire. We stopped, started driving the next day, going through Northern California, and we get stuck in traffic because of a wildfire that's happening. That's like small local wildfire, but we're in traffic for probably two hours and there's nowhere to go. Like it's just, you sit and you wait and we have like almost no service and we're trying to piece together how to get out of here. Traffic because of wildfire seems scarier than normal traffic. Well, yeah, because it's like the fire is happening like a mile up. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems like what you'd want to do is flee from the fire. You can't go anywhere. stuck. Gridlocked. (laughs) So then we drive through like the remnants of this fire. It's still smoking. Places are still burning. It is like apocalyptic. And then we get on our way. We're like, okay, our day just turned from seven to nine hours, but no big deal. Of driving. Uh, And then we get stopped in more traffic. We're waiting there for half an hour. And we see this car drive past all the traffic that says it has one of those big road signs on it. And it says road close. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, Oh, great. So we turn around. And we find out later that there was a car accident. So that road closed. Oh, no. And we're like, our options for getting into Washington are dwindling quickly. Yeah, (laughs) we find our final route. And as we're driving through that, suddenly day turns to night very quickly with these smoke clouds overhead and it's like yeah. glowing red. And both of our phones are buzzing with evacuation orders from the area. And we're like passing all these signs that are telling us roads that are closing because this part of Oregon was like all on fire and we were driving through like the very edge of all the evacuation zones. And so we're like, oh my gosh. Are we going to get stuck here? Was there a point where you said, maybe this is telling me I've made the wrong decision? (laughs) (laughs) I really like to see the meaning and symbols and things. There were definitely moments that I was like, hmm. This is a good sign. Yeah. It was still, you know, fun to be road tripping and, you know, onto a new stage, but also sad. But we made it. We made it home. It took us like 12 hours to get from like Oregon to Tacoma. So it's a doozy, but... (laughs) (laughs) That was one thing. What's another thing? Catch us up on your life. Second thing about Miriam Hamilton. The second thing is another wedding. We got back to Tacoma and one of my best friends, Catherine, 
and my friend Klaus, who is also one of Parker's best friends, they got married that next weekend. And so we get home and they're already in town and they were getting married at Parker and his dad's house. They live on a lake and have this nice little backyard. And of course, with COVID, everything's different when it comes to weddings. So we got there and we hosted a wedding (laughs) and it was just so fun. It was like all of our closest friends were there and got to celebrate them getting married. And Yeah. Shouts to Catherine and Klaus for being good friends and making it into many of your stories about you telling me about Uh your time in Washington. (laughs) I remember, by the way, like we'd be like Zoom calling for college life staff meetings. I would be on my phone because we had such bad internet in my driveway just like looking at the back of my cars and you would be at Parker's dad's house in Washington. This like beautiful lake is behind you. And it's like our experiences right now are are radically (laughs) different. (laughs) And then my third thing, are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. It's another wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Three weddings, the trifecta. (laughs) My brother got married and that was in Kansas about two or three weeks ago. And so I got to go to Kansas with my family and celebrate his wedding with my new sister-in-law, That's right. Libby, and that Libby. was super exciting. But other than that... Did you know that either Ethan or Libby, I can't remember, showed up on like my suggested friends really? on Facebook? Yeah. Whoa. Did you friend them? No. You intentionally didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ignored them. So rude. <laughs> Equivalent of seeing someone on the street that you kind of know and just not saying hi. That's true. Is that true? Because I only accept friends. I don't actually like... It always feels aggressive to friend somebody. It feels very aggressive. Yeah. It would be kind of <laughs> very <odd>. thirsty. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I friended three people in my life. Yeah. In a few words, how was the wedding at Kansas wedding? It was really meaningful, and they did a great job adapting to COVID changes. It was just the ten of us, and super fun, super fun to celebrate. Right. Yeah. 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 So other yeah. than that, I've just been hanging out, looking for work, moving into a new place. In my life. I told you that all the uh, employers in Tacoma must be foolish for not hiring you yet. They just don't know what exactly has entered their state That's and their town. That's why I started all my interviews. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which might be why oh, I'm not going to <laughs> yeah. You could be like Paul. What a transition we just made. Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians. You could say, oh, foolish. Oh, foolish. Washingtonians. Tacomians. All right. So this morning we are reading Galatians and we're going to be chatting about Galatians. And I've started this new habit of reading where I don't read with a pen in my hand because I feel like when I read with a pen in my hand, I get anxious. And so I was reading the C.S. Lewis biography this summer and I was really, I'm really interested, obviously, like most people in the Tolkien-Lewis friendship. Yeah. And so I got to the section where he meets Tolkien and I had this pen in my hand and I got anxious. I should be excited about this section because it's like, this is the part I'm looking forward to. But I got anxious because I'm like, oh, there's going to be important stuff that I'm not going to want to miss. And so I decided I'm going to put the pen away. And then if there's really something magnificent, then I'm going to go back and I'm going to highlight you know, later. So I'm going to put the pen away and just read to enjoy reading. And I feel similarly about Galatians. I read this and it all feels so important. And I feel excited that it's so important, but it feels like the stakes are higher. Yeah. Like the, the stakes feel higher than Thessalonians for some reason, because the ideas seem more profound and powerful and more sort of classic theology, mm-hmm. sort of classic, like the heart of the faith kind of theology. And also it feels like Paul needs to see an anger counselor. He seems so angry and mm-hmm. upset. 
And I feel like if somebody in college life were to like speak to their growth group this way or something like that, I'd be like, dude, you need to calm down. You need to, <laughs> to speak more kindly. Um, and so, yeah, these are some of my first impressions reading Galatians. But I'd love to hear if either of you have any just like general impressions just of reading through this letter. Yeah, I mean, coming off of Thessalonians, there is a tone and content contrast, right? Like his mood kind of couldn't be more different. You know, he was very like yeah. affectionate and grateful with the Thessalonians, with the Galatians. He's a little hot. He's running hot. And then yeah. the content, you know, with the Thessalonians, you know, there's some technical stuff in there about the end of the world, but it's really an encouraging book with a lot of aphorisms. This is very technical. This is theologically technical. And my first impression reading Galatians always is I need to start making a chart. <laughs> right. Yeah. Start making a chart. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Merm, what about you? Any any first impressions? I think it was a little bit confusing for me at first because I start reading Galatians with the verses in my mind that feel like fluffy. Like it's yeah, for freedom. Yeah, yeah. You've been set free and the fruits yeah, of the spirit right, and right. these things where I'm like, oh, like I love the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a warm blanket. Yeah. And then you read things like, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's embedded with all of these. Yeah like really dense statements about the law and justification. And I'm like, wait, how do do these two things relate? So it's a bit confusing for me. I totally agree. I feel like my experience is that if you were to ask me what is Galatians about, I think I would do better the further I get from reading it sometimes. (laughs) I feel like getting like a New Testament dictionary's definition of what Galatians is about would be much easier than actually just reading right. Galatians. Like, I feel like I read Galatians, I'm like, am I sure I know what this is about? <laughs> yeah, like very comfortable misunderstanding it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's give some context. Merm, do you have any light to shed on the context of what's going on in this letter? Why is he writing it? All that stuff. Yeah, so Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, church or churches, I'm not sure. And he's addressing a major issue that's made its way into the church, where he says these false brethren these people have kind of made their way into the church with false doctrine and the false gospel. And so this letter is directly addressing those things. Some history about this church, they are ethnically Gentiles. And so these are people who were not and are not ethnically Jewish and have made their way into the faith after this big decision was decided that you didn't need to follow Jewish law like circumcision in order to be brought into the faith and in order to receive the salvation of Christ, but that it was through only the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection that people were saved. And so that landmark decision, which happened at the Jerusalem Council, is what opened the door for anyone who wanted to profess faith in Jesus Christ to become a follower. And Paul had been delivering this message and he had planted this church in Galatia, which is great news. And then suddenly he learns that there are these false brethren, whoever these people are, these opposers who have made their way into this church and have been preaching a different gospel, which is that they do indeed need to be circumcised and they need to follow certain parts of the old Jewish law in order to be justified and to receive salvation. So it's really interesting because that always begs the question for me of like, well, why would they believe that? Because it seems like such amazing (laughs) news. like. No, you don't need right. to follow those laws. You have this freedom. You've received the grace and you are fully in. And then someone's like, actually, right. you're not. Here are these other things that you need to do. 
And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, how, how right, did that right. happen? From my understanding of the text and some reading I've done on it, it seems like they were struggling with a certain amount of sin of the flesh, whatever that might have been. And that there was this question of like, well, are we really justified just solely through the faith right. or the death and resurrection of Christ? And that doubt and that sort of insecurity in that gave just enough leeway for these false gospels to make their way into the heart of the members of this church and for them to really cling to this idea that if they are circumcised and if they follow the law of the Torah, then they have this security and they receive this justification and they can point to really tangible things that are bringing about holiness in their lives. And it's sort of this like security blanket. It's like they've got a receipt right. at that point, right? Like proof of purchase. Yeah, something that they can demonstrate, like literally physically, but also like ritually that says, all right, like I have verification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a professor in a seminary who tried to live as much of like the law as possible. And so he did all the feasts and stuff. And he had these beads. I don't even remember what they were, but he had these beads that he touched all the time or like he wore them on his belt, something like that. And I remember he just said, like, I do this because I think it's awesome. This is not for, like, my salvation. I just think it's awesome. You know, I think there's a reason that, like, the law existed and there was lots of, like, communion with God to be had and all these things and all these rhythms. But certainly, like, they're not needed for salvation, you know, or even needed for justification anyway. But I just think they're great. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, like, it makes sense to me, like, sort of why they would fall back into that based on how you were talking about it. I don't know. There's like a trope of like, I don't think anyone's satisfied with their quiet times, quote unquote. Like, no one feels like I'm done growing in this. (laughs) If I were to do this for the rest of my life, this is the model for what it means to do quiet time. And so then you hear like a professional Christian, like a pastor, like right now, like I, I can't stop talking about saying the Lord's Prayer every day, right? You know, mm-hmm. so there might be someone who's like, oh, if I really wanted to be serious about this, then I would like pray the Lord's Prayer every day. And then that would become, in a strange way, the receipt that says, okay, at least I'm doing it right. At least I know that if I'm doing this, then I can check it off the box that I know that I'm sort of part of the club. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to look back at like the first couple chapters of Galatians. And it feels like Paul is giving a little bit of a history lesson mm-hmm. of like, you Galatians have started to believe this idea when like, let me tell you what happened. Like when Jesus first met me, I then went preached gospel to the Gentiles. And then after a long time, I went to Jerusalem to see, am I doing this right? Am I crazy? And basically the answer was no, you're right. And they even said chapter two, verse eight, he's talking about like, Peter's going to go to the Jews and Paul's going to go to the Gentiles. And they perceived the grace that was in Paul. And that was sort of his ticket to be like, yeah, you go ahead and keep preaching to the Gentiles, this particular gospel that you do not need to be circumcised, you do not need to be ethnically Jewish in order to be a part of this family. And so he's saying, hey, the the big kahunas of this faith, you know, James, Peter, everyone says that this is true. This is not just my message. And so I came to you with this message and you accepted it. And now these other people are coming back after me telling you, no, you actually do need to be ethnically Jewish. You need to be circumcised. You need to probably follow the feast codes and all that stuff. And so anyway, it's just interesting that it was pretty explicit in the beginning. He was trying to say like, this is not just an isolated idea of mine. Like this is the default orthodox idea of the big kahunas in the Jerusalem church. And you're believing a lie. Like you're believing a non-mainstream idea now, you know? And obviously it sets the context for everything. I think that touches on a lot of the tone that Paul has throughout the whole letter which we've already talked about a little bit. He's 
very urgent in the way that he's writing. And it's different than a lot of his other letters where he's establishing this sort of credibility of his authority and the message he's delivered saying, this is revelation from God. Like I'm not just speaking from my own mind and the ideas that I've conjured up like these other people might be in some sense, but I'm speaking out of direct revelation from God. And he's just establishing very explicitly, like, I have authority, I know what I'm talking about, and you guys have been messing up. (laughs) And it's a little bit uncomfortable, the tone that he strikes to the Church of Galatia. And it seems to me not one of affection at first glance. But when you understand the content of his message and his tone, then it totally changes the way it's coming across. And (laughs) the first thing that I think of as a sort of example of this is that famous scene from The Notebook when, I don't remember their names, but the guy... (laughs) Their names are Ryan and Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) They get off the rowboat and it's like pouring and they've had this like kind of tense moment of like, they used to be in love, but now they've gone their separate ways and they come back together. And she's like, why didn't you write to me? And she has this like kind of urgent and desperate look on her face. And he responds by telling her like, I wrote to you every day for a year. Every day. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you could replace what he's saying with like, I hate you so much. And it would make so much sense. But the content is like, I did write to you and I love you. But his tone is sort of aggressive. Because he's trying to convey just how much he does love her. And I think it's the same thing with Paul. He's trying to convey Mm. to the church in Galatia how important it is that they grasp the truth of this because it is such good news. And they've traded in this true good news of the freedom of the real gospel for a fake and cheap counterfeit that is enslaving them. And so he uses words like, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ. And, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Like, he uses this aggressive tone and language to convey the freedom that they actually have. So, it's tough at face value, but I think it's ultimately exciting. Yeah. And I think so in chapter four, verse 19, he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You know, it's clear that he's not angry because he's like necessarily like personally offended, although he might be, who knows, but it like seems like he's urgent because what they're believing and living into is not good for them, you know? And it is funny because the next verse he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I am perplexed (laughs) about you. (laughs) So good. All right, let's get to some categories. Let's get to the segments. Let's do it. Let's start with everyone's favorite Les Mis song, I Themed a Theme. So all these letters of different epistles, they might have some theme overlap, but there's often a central theme or a few central themes to them. And so, Miriam, what was a or one of the themes that you saw? Let's talk about I Themed a Theme. Yeah, I think the major theme, you can call it justified by faith. You could call it faith versus the law, but is Paul addressing the issue of what makes someone justified, justified being someone being made in right relationship again with God. And I think to really touch on this, we need to understand that this letter isn't addressing the law as like a general sense of works, but he's talking about specifically the actual law, specifically circumcision, and this real problem that had entered into this church in this point in time. And so as we 
explore this. We can't necessarily be interpreting it as just any works that we do, because I don't think that's quite what Paul is getting at here. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I would. And I think when I said that, when I read Galatians, I was like, I feel like I understood this better before I read it again. You know, I feel like all these words, if you've been in the church for a while, even justification, law, righteousness, all those things, it feels like, okay, I know what the gestalt of those words are. Like, I know what the general form is, and I know sort of what they mean in isolation, but like, how are they working together in the paragraph? How are they working together in the sentence? What particular slice of the semantic range of these words is Paul getting at? I feel like it's just when you're trying to read it and piece together the argument, it gets confusing and tedious, but the words seem relatively simple. Or even if they're not simple, it's like, you're supposed to know what they are if you've been in the church for a little bit. And I think because of that, you sort of read all the words and it might just be my experience, but my mind just sort of glosses over them and I'm reading them and I'm not thinking, oh, what does that word mean? I feel like I know what it means, but I'm not totally understanding without some digging. I'm not totally understanding the point that's being made. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you're talking about, I think we need to really understand what is meant by law, what is meant by justification. I think that's all like pretty crucial and also probably can get a little tedious. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, it totally can be. And it's interesting because we're definitely not doing the exact same thing nowadays where we're not having different churches quarreling over like, do we need to follow this law of the Torah in order to be welcomed into the faith fully? But we do certainly have other ways that we experience a similar sense of like this insecurity that they were feeling of, is it true that the freedom that I have in the spirit and by my faith in Jesus Christ is actually real and I can bank my life on it. And I think that's really what he's hitting at is this insecurity, but it is contextually coming about in a way that we're not so used to. So this theme, justified by faith, it really does become a bit dense. Paul uses a lot of language that is (laughs) kind of hard to wrap our minds around. But ultimately what he's doing is he's explaining the place of the law. And the Galatians and actually everyone at this point has just undergone an intense shift in like the foundation of the world. (laughs) I don't really know how else to explain it. Like Jesus died and things just completely changed. And Mm -hmm. for Jews, this was a new question that was being brought about of what is our new relationship with the law? And previously, the law had been the way to achieve holiness. It's been the way to God's heart. It's been revealing the vision of the kingdom of God and his people were sort of bound to it. And then now Jesus has died and resurrected. And now the law isn't the way that they need to follow. Suddenly it's something new. And so this question of the relationship that God's people have with the law is on everyone's mind at this point. Yeah. I think of it in terms of, you know, Paul's addressing a question of continuity and discontinuity between the Hebrew scriptures and the new Christian story. If you were to take kind of many of the Christian traditions right now, they tend to stress either continuity or discontinuity between the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures. There are traditions that are just like, you know, it's nice to tell the old Bible stories to kids in Sunday school, but like when you grow up, really, you spend most of your time in the New Testament because the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore. And Paul is obviously saying the Old Testament law, there's a certain sense in which that is no longer binding, but this is the same story. We are in complete narrative continuity with what God's been doing for thousands of years. 
And so the story that we're telling and the life that we're calling you to live is in continuity with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Mm -hmm. and David. And it it is the same story. Yeah. And I feel it might be my small headedness, but I feel like I want to revisit something that you said at the beginning, Miriam, where you said like the law is not general works. The law is particular Jewish sort of Mm -hmm. custom law. So things that marked you as ethnically Jewish. So again, I think for the most part, I think those are circumcision for one, certainly a very physical sign. And then I think the like the feasts and Sabbath, things that were distinctly Jewish. And I guess I'm curious to know from both of you, because I think I have an answer to this, but I don't want to push us in the direction of just talking about what I think. But it's like when you think most modern Christians hear something like justified by faith and maybe justified by faith and not by works. What's the story in your mind that most Christians are imagining when they hear that phrase? I think of faith as a default uh, or a dormant way that it's something that you just do with your mind and that's where it ends. But that's not supported by the rest of scripture where faith is shown to be also in context with the way that you live. And it's also presented here in Galatians. Paul talks about that later. But you're saying that potentially, even if it doesn't fit with scripture, there's part of me that thinks that the story being imagined by justified by faith and not by works is something like it's more about what you think and believe than what you do. Yeah. It's the passive part of your religious experience that saves you. Certainly not the active part of your religious expression that saves you. Let's read the passage in 2.16. It says, Yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I remember when I became a Christian and people started talking about the law, I thought they were talking about like speeding and stealing. (laughs) I was like 18 or something like that. So like the law breaking that I was doing was like going seven miles over the speed limit. It seemed all pretty trivial. And the law is something very specific. So in my Bible, I have a color for kind of these J words, justified, justice, judge, because those aren't words we all think of as combined, but they're actually all connected words. They're words about, you know, rendering a verdict Mm -hmm. and Hmm. verdicts are connected to laws. And so the particular kind of law that Paul is talking about ends up being important here. Yeah, we're probably as we come to these texts, we are bringing our understanding and our story of what law means and then what faith means, you know, and then we're sort of probably reading the story that we have into these texts, right? So I will admit that the story I'm about to tell is a simplistic story, but it's it's like sort of my working definition of what I think people mean by justified by faith and not by works, sort of exactly what's happening in the passage you just read, Stanford, which by the way, the phrase, let's actually read the passage. It's like a a trump card, but it's like a kind trump card. It's like, okay, cute conversation. Now let's actually look at the scriptures again. (laughs) But yeah, I think sort of along the lines what you said, Miriam, was that we think that this means you are justified by what you believe and not by what you do. So justified by faith, meaning like what you believe and not by the law, which is you know, all these rules and sort of regulations that define the Old Testament. And so then the tension, if that's the story, becomes 
righteousness by faith or our works righteousness. And if, if you've heard that phrase before, like a works righteousness, which is essentially an attitude that someone says, I can be saved by what I do. And that might be going to church every week. That could be reading my Bible every day. That could be praying frequently. And it's like, if you live into something that's works righteousness, you're communicating to yourself or like the story you're telling is like, what I do is the thing that saves me. And the stuff that I do is the thing that saves me. And so I'm just going to put on my like brief historian hat and tell another simplistic story of like why I think this is the way it is. And I'm hoping that in the simplistic storytelling that you guys push back on me a little bit if you feel the need to. In like the seminary world, and if you've read N.T. Wright, then you might be familiar with this particular story. But it sort of goes like this. So like in the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther was a particular idiosyncratic man. And he was living in this time where like the Catholic Church was literally people were like buying their way toward repentance, buying their way toward salvation with what they call penance. Like if you sort of could pay this fee, then you would be forgiven of your sins. And obviously that's illicit and that's horrific. That's like a bastardization of the faith. And so he was sort of dealing with these questions of what does get you forgiven? What does get you saved? You know, and it was it had gone so far in one direction of like you can literally buy your way to salvation you know, and you can buy your way to forgiveness. And so he's reading Romans and in Romans, you know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he's reading that and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. this has nothing to do with earning it. This is a passive experience. We receive salvation. We receive this. We don't get it by anything that we do. And so, again, in the simplistic story, he maybe overcorrects and and starts to think, this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you don't buy your way to salvation. You don't earn your way to salvation. You don't work your way to salvation. You have faith in the one that gives you salvation. And that's the thing that justifies you and then sanctifies you and continues going on. So essentially, which is, that's a good idea. I think that's a very helpful correction to obviously his moment in time. But perhaps the mistake that he made was that he was assuming that Paul was interested in the same questions he was interested in. So he was in the 15th century world dealing with 15th century topics, 15th century questions, 15th century scandals. And then with that lens, reading first century texts, assuming that first century texts were dealing with 15th century issues, when in fact, the first century text was dealing with first century issues, which perhaps were not necessarily about how do you earn salvation or how do you earn forgiveness. It seems like here, Paul's interested in more specifically this Jew-Gentile relationship. Do you have to be ethnically Jewish to be in this family? And it's not as much about, is it connected to anything that you do? And I don't know if I explained that clearly, but anyway, what I just described is sort of called, a simplistic story is called the new perspective on Paul. It's a sort of a group of historians, I guess, and theologians trying to recover. What did Paul mean by what he was saying, not what did sort of the later interpreters think based on their own experiences. So anyway, was that helpful or not helpful? (laughs) Well, Peter, you know that I find the new perspective on Paul deeply dull. (laughs) I I have to say, I, I have an appetite for pages. I can blow through a pretty dull book, but I don't think I've made it more than four pages into any book on the new perspective on Paul. How far did you make it into my little monologue? <laughs> I was there. The idea is that Luther made an important corrective, yes. but that we need to recognize that he had a moment and Paul has a moment and we have a moment. That is an important insight. But I also think that people and scandals and the tendency to find religious worth in actions that are unconnected to the actual central message of the faith, that's human nature. 
And so in some ways, I find the story that Luther tells to still be our story and in some ways to be Paul's story. But then, like, I would boil the new perspective down into, hey, let's not forget that there is actual ethnic tension in the Galatian church. And actually, the background is also very compelling. It's a background of ethnic and racial tension and how the church can work through racial and ethnic tension and how being justified by faith is actually a pathway for that, which actually I don't think could be any more compelling to us right now. Yes, I agree. I think maybe then as as I'm listening to you, I think the crux of the issue is then obviously you're not justified by what you do, but the logic of your faith is not to then never do any works because you're afraid that you're going to slip into works righteousness. Miriam, do you have a response? Yeah, this is an interesting conversation. I think that the verse that has been sort of most compelling for me in this difference in what it means to be in this discrepancy between works and the law and faith and what the implications of all these things are is in Galatians 5.16 which I think we'll talk about a little bit later, but it says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And none of that is directly talking about you're justified by faith or by works or whatever, but it is communicating that if you walk by the spirit, which first of all is an action, it's not if you Mm -hmm. believe in the spirit, if you walk by the spirit, so spirit being other than you, power of God, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's not saying walk by the spirit and also don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Mm -hmm. It's saying walk in faith with God. And this is what happens. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's not saying you're going to be perfect, which, you know, I read it and I'm like, Ooh, what does that mean? Because definitely I'm still a sinner. (laughs) But when you see the relationship there, it's not one of I need to do this in order to get this. But it's saying one of, if I am doing this, then there's not more necessarily that's, I suppose, required of me. It's sort of a natural consequence of the spirit is all of these things and there will be fruit of it. And I know that can seem really oversimplified, but I think it's true and really significant in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think why Paul gets so fired up about the significance and the role of the actual law and how Gentile believers are supposed to understand it. And if we go back to chapter three, Paul talks about the law and the promise. And this was, I think, wild for me when it finally sunk in that, like you were saying, Stanford, he provides this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where he's showing the story of the law and how First, God made a promise to Abraham. First, there was a promise of blessing to Abraham and his offspring. Yeah. And then after that, the law came into existence. Paul goes on to say that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, which from Paul's tone, it would be easy to deduce that he's saying that the law is bad, but he's not saying that the law is bad. He's just saying that things have changed now. And it was once functioning as your guardian, as the thing that was pointing you to what the vision of the kingdom of God was supposed to be like, laying out very directly, this is what it means to love your neighbor, which is the heart of God. But now things have changed. And it's not that the law is bad, but it's that you don't need the law to justify you, to make you in right relationship with God. And 
I really love that because I think it's showing this affection that Paul has for for the law and the story that God has written and also still so grounded in the gospel of the grace of Christ. Yeah. Can we camp there a little bit? Because I feel like, again, it's like a lot of those words, I feel like I understand, but the argument about the law is yeah. so elusive to me. So I wonder if we could try to to figure out, because I feel like Paul sort of flip-flops by in saying like the, the law is good and can be good, and then the law is right. not good. I feel like he both says it's good and both says it's not good. So he calls it a guardian when it sounds like it's sort of saying that the law sort of brought mm. us yeah. forward. It was like a bridge. Mm-hmm. It was like a guide on a journey that was going from point A to point B. And at point B, we wouldn't necessarily need the guardian anymore. We wouldn't need the guide anymore. But it was the one that was like getting us there. But at the same time, sort of knowing that it's not mm-hmm. the ultimate mm-hmm. thing. And so I guess maybe that just invites questions of like, why do it? You know, which we're not here to adjudicate. Like, why have this gap of time where there was this incomplete, imperfect guide that was bringing us along until we got to Jesus, who was going to ultimately fulfill all that and allow us to have sort of the the life that the law was supposed to give us, but never could. Like, that's the thing. It's like, okay, the law was there to like to help the people of God be close to God, and yet they can never do it. And it seems like God knew that they can never do it. And so it was there to sort of like be a guide and to point them to the reality that they needed something more than the guide, you know, which just feels like <laughs> not a great guide to me. Or maybe it does. I don't know. It's like, I just think it's sort of circular. Yeah, it sounds like you're asking why God didn't just save us all sooner. Like that is sort of an interesting question. I don't think I'm necessarily interested totally in that question, although it's like, I don't know if I'd have a great answer for it, you know, but I feel like I want to be able to solve the puzzle. Like I want to be able to be like, this was the point of the law. This is what it meant then. And this is what it means now. And this is how Jesus fulfilled it. I feel like Mm -hmm. all that feels very slippery. Like I feel like way back last quarter or last year we were talking about you know, this Old Testament narrative where God wants to be with his people and he just can never be with his people because they're not holy and they're not pure. And he needs to be in relationship with people who are holy and pure. That's why he sets up a covenant. You are going to be my people. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be different than everyone. And I'm going to have a relationship with you. And then they Mm -hmm. keep not being holy and pure. And so then he builds the tabernacle. I'm going to come to you, but you're not even holy and pure enough to be in my presence. So you have to live this way. Let me tell you all the ways to be holy and pure. So it's like, it's God's continually trying to have relationship with his people. And the law is like sort of the the rules of like, here's how we have to be in relationship with each other. If you don't do this, then we can't be close. I can't be with you. You can't be with me. So in that sense, it seems like such a grace and such a wonderful thing. But then it's also an enslaver. They're enslaved by the law. They are Mm -hmm. sort of oppressed by the law. And so now it seems like it's a bad thing. And so like, I guess those are the dimensions that I'm trying to wrestle with. Yeah. I wish I had a an easy response, but I feel like I'm also wrestling with the same thing where it feels like I get it. And then yeah, it's like when you have one of those moments when you're driving where you're like kind of understand eternity for like a split second and then it's gone the next. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that Paul's central insight is that history is symmetrical, right? That there is a sense in which if the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus is the center of history then there are kind of two modes of being, one that points forward and one that points back. You know, depending on where you sit with respect to that event, you know, and the kind of theologically, we talk about how the sacraments, things like baptism and communion, they point back to those events in the same way that the law would point forward. Yeah. And so you have these practices that are taking people who 
you know, by accident of history or provenance, fall on one side of that event or the other. And they both have these practices that point towards that event. The events mm-hmm. in the future, the practices that are going to point towards that event are going to be very different than the practices that point back to the event that yeah. you have full knowledge of. Mm-hmm. You know, this book ends with these fruits of the spirit, which I know because of a camp song, right? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like, it's hard to say that how you live doesn't matter if you're justified by faith when, you know, the book ends with these things. I think these are the things that God wants as evidence of, you know, our allegiance to the kingdom. But the way that they are produced changes from law to spirit. And there are still practices, you know, the metaphor he uses sowing. I grew up on a farm. Like the way that you get things out of the ground is a lot of hard work and a lot of like long-term practices. It's not like that stuff goes yeah. away, but the nature of the practices changes because of like just on which side of the central event of history that you land on. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the great passages of like the New Testament and one of the ones that gets like celebrated the most and is the most beautiful is Galatians 3.28, which is... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, 28 to 29. This seems like the climax of the argument about the law. Like this seems like this is the ultimate goal of the argument Paul is trying to make is that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I apologize because I think I took us on a different journey than maybe what we could have done. But, you know, Stanford, you had mentioned just this deeply ethnic dimension. It does feel like the argument Paul is wanting to make is potentially about the law. And I'm going to try this on, but it's like that you guys, you all Galatians are being told that you need to become like this ethnic group in order to be a part of the family of God. And what Paul is essentially saying, he does all this work on the law to say, no, actually, we had the law. It was both good because it told us how to live and also good because it told us we would never be able to live this way. So it drew our hearts to longing to like live this way without having to be under the curse of the law, which Jesus has delivered for us. That's why we are made justified, made right, made righteous, declared righteous, not by how we follow the law or in other words, not by becoming ethnically Jewish, but because Christ fulfilled the law and we can be part of his family. And in that family, we blow up this ethnic Jewish thing. And now it doesn't matter if you are Jewish. It doesn't matter if you are Greek. It doesn't matter if you are slave or a free or a male or female. None of that matters. The thing that matters is whether or not you have sort of pledged your allegiance to this Christ, to this king who has made a way for you. The one who the guide was bringing you to all this time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that verse gets thrown around a lot without respect to where it sits in the scriptures. But I think it's actually one of the interpretive keys of Galatians is that this is a church that is being torn apart by ethnic and racial tension, right? Like you've got these two very different ethnic groups of people in the church that have very different stories about, you know, who they are and why they are. And now like they've been knit together into what Paul is calling a family and it's just not working. And, you know, Paul's central argument here, I think, is that, listen, you're part of the same family. And actually, the things that defined your identity apart from the family, those are no longer the kind of the central aspects of your identity. And in fact, you know what? It's not just your race or your ethnicity. It's your gender. 
It's your class. Look at what he hits here. Race, class, and gender. As far as, you know, the sorts of things that you know, define who I am. That's a pretty interesting idea about, you know, being knit into the family of God and kind of what it takes to do that. Yeah. This is making me think back on, again, that passage talking about the Abrahamic covenant, which I'm going to jump to a new section. That sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New segment. That sounds familiar. Not too long ago, although it feels like it was ages ago, we went through Old Testament overview, the biblical narrative, and we talked about this covenant with Abraham. He basically says to him, like, I'm going to bless your people. And he talks about his offspring. Yeah. And that launches this people of God. And what's really interesting is that Paul is saying here that this covenant was the original gospel, sort of the gospel before the gospel of Christ, but it's also the same thing. And this promise that he makes to him for his offspring, Paul is now saying, in verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, just like way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, beginning of this narrative, God makes a promise Mm. that is actually pointing to Christ. Mm -hmm. And it reinterprets than what the meaning of it was the whole time. Because obviously, Abraham didn't know, like, Jesus Christ is going to come, and this is going to be how the story sort of resolves or changes from here on out. But that was who God was originally intending this blessing to be about. And through Christ, the offspring, all are receiving this blessing. So it goes from, like, the direct offspring of Abraham and their actual tie to him as being the people who are receiving this blessing to, okay, limiting it down even more. No, it's actually just talking about one person, but because of that one person, everybody gets access into this faith and into this promise and into this blessing. So it's just this like wild way that Paul is looking back at the story and sort of this aha moment of like, Oh, and all this time it's been pointing to Christ. And the result of that is mm-hmm. Galatians three twenty eight, which is there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. That through this one offspring in Christ Jesus, everyone has access and your ethnic identity, your gender, your socioeconomic status, whatever other identity that you possess is not going to count you out of faith in Jesus Christ, because it is through him that all have justification, right relatedness with God. Yeah. It's like the word offspring is just like you said, just operating on on tons of different levels or maybe two different levels. But it's like the promise to Abraham is that you will be the father of this family. And so your offspring are going to make essentially my nation that I'm going to use to redeem the world. But I'm going to do that through your sort of future offspring, one singular, which is going to be Jesus, who is going to then be the focal point that which it spreads all the wide and it's no longer connected to one nation state. It's no longer connected to one ethnic group. Now it's what it was supposed to do at, at the very beginning, which was to be for Israelites and also all the Gentiles, you know, because there's a way of sometimes thinking that like, okay, why would God have chosen Israel if like then in the New Testament, he was going to make it about all people? 
But this argument is that like the Gentile mission was there at the beginning of this promise. That's right. It was going to be a time when it was sort of relegated to one single nation of people. But then the whole point was always for it to progress beyond that and for it to be for all people. And I think it's really important that this isn't like retconned, yeah. right? That this is actually like in that Genesis text, God says that, you know, I will make you a blessing to all nations. Paul isn't kind of reinterpreting reality. Paul is like just seeing what's there and realizing what God has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does sound familiar. And let's move on to, I think, our last segment of uh, this pod, which is uh, one of my favorites. Just can't get it out of my head. It's like a song that just gets stuck, like a little jingle that's just with you all day, like a constant companion. Just can't get it out of my head. I read it. I love it. Want to sing it to anyone who will listen. So, uh, Miriam, what can you knock it out of your head? Well, there is a lot from Galatians that I feel is stuck in my head. But no surprise, walk by the Spirit has been just like ringing through my mind. First, that verse of, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then second, verse 22, which is the fruits of the Spirit, um, which Stanford already listed for us. Thank you, Stanford. And my thought on this is that there is something about the way that Paul often in his letters, writes these sort of lists of what it means to be like walking by the Spirit. And generally, I assume that when I read that, I'm going to feel like guilty, like the sense of, okay, well, (laughs) definitely that's not what my life looks like, at least in its entirety. But instead, I find myself just like full of this, this hope of the vision that he casts for the church. And I don't mm-hmm. quite know what it is about the way that he writes it, but I read these things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'm like, I want a piece of that. That's what I want in my life. And yeah. there's no deep theological commentary that I have on that. It's just an affection for it and sort of the warm fuzzies that come from reading the fruits of the spirit. I think it could be deep. Like, I think there's a way of understanding what it means to be a Christian as like, if you imagine yourself crossing an imaginary line, like well, once I've become these things, then I know mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, sort of like that's my receipt, mm-hmm. you know? There's another way of thinking, like just what direction are you pointed? Mm-hmm. You know, are you like walking toward Jesus? Are you walking that way? And are you on the way kind of thing? But it sounds like what you're describing is like reading these things is not crushing to you in that like, oh, I'm a six out of 10 on love. I'm a four out of 10 on joy. I'm a two out of 10 on peace. I'm a 10 out of 10 on patience. You know, like you're not ranking yourself in all these things, mm-hmm. but you're seeing them as aspirational and beautiful. And they're not the check mark to make sure I'm a Christian, but they are the things that your heart yeah. is longing for, which probably tells you that you're walking with Jesus. I think it gets to the law puzzle that we were were talking about before is this is actually Paul's thesis. And I think that the verb of walking is actually a really important verb because it's process. Yeah. I think that what people get tied up in the law puzzle is, is justification an event, something that happens and then you're done with it and kind of get on with your life. And I think that it's pretty clear that justification is in fact an event that the spirit comes and lives with you. It's something that happens to you, but it's like, it's an event that starts a story. It's an event that starts a process. Mm -hmm. And then you get to be in this process of like sewing and walking and all of these really active verbs of, you know, taking a trajectory into the rest of your life towards this basket of fruit, which honestly is like everything I want out of life. And it's everything that I pray for my kids. And then I think that what Paul wants is exactly what Miriam is describing is that, you know, even though I find myself 
you know, a, a two out of four on patients, like that's okay for now, as long mm-hmm. as I'm walking towards a three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's a process where I can accept certain deficits knowing that those deficits are covered by the justification of Christ's death and resurrection. But like I'm walking towards growth in this full basket of pomegranates and kiwis. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate what you said about going back to the law puzzle. Cause I feel like when we were talking about it, I was realizing that what I was wanting to do was separate justification and sanctification. And right. Like this whole, you are justified, you are declared in a moment righteous, not by what you do. There's nothing about what you're bringing to the table that's doing this. So it is, in a sense, that's passive. That justification is passive. But then the life that you live is not passive. The life that you live is a active, potentially slow, over lifetime journey with God that could take steps forward, steps back, but is overall on the trajectory toward the fruit of the spirit. It's like the stock market, I guess. Like <laughs> over a hundred years, it's going up and to the right, right? Hopefully. Hopefully, right. And I think that is the key sort of puzzle to my own thinking, if we were sort of puzzled by with what I was saying before, is that the works righteousness, the fear of works righteousness, and that being the thing that like justifies you and saves you. I think it's actually a conversation which we don't have time to talk about now, but like the difference between justification and sanctification, like how are you declared righteous? And then how are you continually made holy? Sort of like the moment you become a Christian and then like what happens after you become a Christian. I think also I'm realizing one of the reasons I love this is because it is communicating the theology that Paul is so urgently trying to share with the church of their freedom. That's right. And he's not saying you're enslaved mm-hmm. to these things of the fruit, but he's saying the fruit is showing you the freedom that you have. And I love that our conversation over this podcast yeah. has gotten all jumbled as we've been trying to work through this puzzle of what what does this actually mean? Because it's dense and it's complicated. But ultimately, I hope that everyone listening And everyone who reads this would come away with a sense of the heart of Paul's message, which is, in Christ, we have been set free. And look at what this freedom is doing. It's bringing you to a place of the fruit of the Spirit of God and His heart, which is all of these things that we just listed. Yeah. I think what he's saying is like, yeah, the logic of everything that Jesus did is that you no longer have to be enslaved by this thing that was enslaving you the thing that you can never measure up to. Like, why would you want your righteousness to be declared by how well you follow the law? You know, when Jesus is telling you, I'm going to declare you righteous and I'm going to give you my spirit and it's going to produce what the law was always supposed to produce in you. I also think, okay, last thing I'll say on the fruit of the spirit. When I used to read this as a younger Christian, I would think that this was sort of like spiritual gifts. Like it's like some of us are going to be love people. Some of us are going to be joy people, patience people, gentleness people. Like you can have your like one fruit of the spirit. But then I remember a seminary professor just saying, like, the word is fruit, not fruits. Like, this is not Mm -hmm. like individual virtues. Like, this is the whole package of what it means to be a person of the spirit. And I think that's brilliant. This is the kind of person you're becoming. Like, some of you aren't becoming love people and some of you aren't becoming self-control people. Like, this is the journey. Like, life with the spirit will produce this in you. It's like a growth puzzle. Yeah. You know, some of us, because of our genetics and upbringings, some of these things come easier to some of us than others. But that doesn't mean that that gets to be the lane that we are going to be in. Right. Like this is what it looks like to be someone who follows Jesus. Some of these will come easier to some people and some will come easier to others, which means that you'll look at someone who's kind of strong in different suits and you'll just think that they're immature. When in fact, you know, Christian growth, it's not univariate, it's multivariate. And so we're all kind of at different points on different parts of the path, which kind of puts us all on even ground. 
Yeah. Yeah. Anything else on Galatians you guys want to sneak in before we quarantine it up? I love that Peter and Paul get in a fight. I do too. <laughs> the apostles have a fight. It just shows that like, it's always messy. It's yeah, always messy totally. and always takes repentance and forgiveness. I love, by the way, that's like one of my favorite scenes too of like the epistles because there's not that many scenes in the epistles. Right, right. Paul is like, yeah, Peter was doing it right. He was eating with the Gentiles. He was living into the new logic of this, that there is no Jew nor Greek. And then, like, to me, it's always like one person sort of told him, actually, are you sure they don't need to become Jewish? It just switched. And it's like, it's so easy, especially when there's like deep cultural stories That's right. attached to this, which means we have to adopt a new way of seeing reality, way of seeing the world. I think it shows how easy it can be to sort of trust what we're used to and not sort of the new family of God. And I would say that, like, I just have so much respect for Peter in this passage, because mm-hmm. if I was in Peter's position, I would say, who's this chump? He's telling me what to do. Did he walk with Jesus the whole time? And like the the ability of Peter to have this essential outsider call him and realize, oh, he's right. I've departed. It's just, that's who I want to be. That's interesting because maybe some people are like, Peter's the like enemy of that story, right? He's the antagonist. He's who I want to be. Yeah, that's great. I love that. What a way to end. What a way to end. Shall we um, go to Quarantine Corner? I have to admit that I feel particularly excited (sighs) about my Quarantine Corner. All right, but I'm going to lead because mine is thematic. How about that? Okay, yeah. All right, because mine is about walking. Uh, Perfect. (laughs) And I've chosen it because I knew that I would have Miriam here to back me up. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I see. Are you getting your hiking shoes on? (laughs) It's a hiking quarantine (laughs) corner. (laughs) Uh, And I just think for your passion about walking and process, Peter, like I I still cannot understand. I love walking. I love walking like on manicured green belt paths. I love that. I do that all day. Yeah. Well, so my quarantine corner is Carson Pass. And so my wife and I, we took a couple days and got away and did a little hiking vacation. And we've just, in the last six months over the quarantine, so it is actually Quarantine Corner, we've discovered Carson Pass, which is like 30 minutes south of Tahoe. And the hiking in Carson Pass is comparable to Tahoe without any Mm. of the crowds. And you can scale it. Like we've been up there with our kids and our kids have like a max distance of four miles Mm -hmm. with lots of chocolate and whining, you know, or that my wife and I like to take 12 mile mountains. It's all there. It's two hours away. If you leave like moderately early, you can get there. You can do your hike. You can get back by dinner time. And it's not overrun Mm -hmm. like Tahoe is. And so Carson Pass, the Winnemucca Loop, you've still got a couple of weeks before the snow falls. If you want to get Get up there and find some clean air. Oh man, that sounds amazing. How brown is it? When you're doing this hike, everywhere you look, is it brown? No, it's blue and green and there's some brown, but it's geology. So there's a story behind it. That's true. When we were at Nathan and Tabitha's wedding, we like, I don't, it wasn't a hike. We like walked onto a bridge and then walked off the bridge. But we were over this North Fork, American River, whatever. And you know what I will say? One of the most beautiful things is when a river bends out of sight. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling Katie, it's like a satisfying chord of music. It's like a major chord or something like that where just like everything about it feels right. You know, there's no dissonance. It just feels like, oh, that's good to look at. Yeah. Yeah, right. That is good. (laughs) Miriam, can you give us a quarantine corner? I can. Are you ready? Yes. It's really good. I'm totally ready. Okay. My quarantine corner is don't get sick. (laughs) (laughs) why okay because obviously normally getting sick is always a bust and i know peter your philosophy on getting sick is like okay just buck up 
go on with your life. Pretend you're not sick. Yeah. I will say pre-COVID, that was my right. philosophy. Sure. And then maybe for a little bit dragged into the beginning of COVID. And then I've changed that philosophy, but not necessarily about all things other than COVID. So just so you know, I wear masks. <laughs> I don't see one on right now. It's not about that. That's true. My microphone is deeply infected with whatever germs I have. Okay. But I, when I get sick, it's like my world shuts down and I truly wish I were different about it, but it slows me down in all aspects of my life. So I'm always telling people like, do what you can not to get sick. But I got sick last week, just a little cold. And it just completely derailed my <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> because suddenly you have a cold and you're like, oh no, am I going to kill everybody's grandparents? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what does this yeah, mean? Yeah, you're a lethal weapon. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you have That's actual right. cooties. And so I had to go to the doctor and get a test and I got a rapid test, but it turns out rapid tests are like not very sensitive. And so if you get a negative result on your rapid test it doesn't actually mean very much. So then I had to get this another... This like horrible news. Yes. So my doctor came back in the room. She's like, your test came back negative. And I'm like, great. And then she's like, but I still think there's a good chance you could have COVID. So I'm going to send in another test. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, my anyways. gosh. I think you've had the most tests of anyone that I know, especially anyone that I know who has not had COVID. Six of them. You've definitely written the most poems about them. <laughs> That's yeah. <certainly> true. <laughs> I remember too, you were like celebrating, like one positive of the whole quarantine was that you're like, this is the longest I've been without getting sick. Yes. So I think it actually has been the longest I've been for years. I'm sad that it ended. Seven months or eight months or something. Pretty good. Yeah. And my quarantine corner is going to sound dull and I'm going to promise you that it's the most thrilling thing that you'll hear. I'm ready. I'm going to take you on a wild ride, okay? And it's <laughs> the quarantine corner. The title is going to be Mathematics. Oh, I'm already in. Sometimes math can be fun, okay? Um, uh, sometimes. Reason number, yeah. <laughs> reason number one, we were given an abacus by our neighbors so that Mason can play with it. And now it is no longer a Mason toy. It is now a Katie toy because she learned how to do an abacus. And so she always says, just give me a math problem. And so I'll say like 1,047 plus... 2048 and then she'll do it on the abacus so i'll go and like she's just like playing on the abacus all day so anyway that's fun math can be fun but here's another reason math can be fun okay i'm going to introduce you to a number 300 okay 300 keep that in your mind this was the number of dollars that i was given two birthdays ago to purchase a new barbecue so i've been getting into cooking and as you all know it's been well documented on the podcast and like all sorts of different styles of cooking and so but i've had this stupid tabletop grill for the whole time since i graduated college so it's been since 2013 and and so it sort of limits what i can do and so i wanted a new grill and so i got $300 and then i started hearing about these pellet grills do you know about these vaguely the traegers the traeger which we yeah. burned the the burgers on freshman retreat yeah. So anyway, I was getting really excited about maybe a, a pellet grill. and But the Traeger is sort of the name brand. And it was about the one I would get is probably $700. Okay. So $300, $700. So that's, I'm still forking out some money for that. And then I do some research. In the research, it tells me that it's basically because it's just cooking with indirect heat. I promise this is interesting. Okay. It's just cooking with indirect heat. You can't sear anything and you can't char anything. And it doesn't really get hot enough to do like a quick backyard barbecue, like just want to like grill some chicken, you know? So it's mostly good for a smoker. So I'm like, am I really going to spend $400 of my own money on something that I can't really do everything with, you know? So I kind of gave up the hope. I was like, I'm going to get some stupid propane Weber grill, whatever. Uh, And then I did more research and getting deeper into the hole. I said, what other pellet grills are there essentially? And there's this one called the Pit Boss. 
okay? okay? The Pit Boss, which is $500, and it has a feature where you can expose the flame that's underneath that's doing all the smoking so that you can char and you can sear, which if you remember from about 45 seconds ago, I said were the two features of the Traeger with which I was not actually excited about. So it gets hotter and it can char and it wow. can sear. $500. So it's cheaper and can do everything that I want it to do. Then I realized that our very own Nicholas Laddig works at Lowe's and he tells me he can get a 10% employee discount, which if we're doing mathematics will be $450, right? And then this last weekend, I tell him, hey, Nick, how's the pit boss looking? First of all, he tells me everyone loves him. No one's ever returned one. Incredible device. That's amazing. Device. Oh, so that's good insight intel. Yeah, great intel. So I'm feeling pretty good about this. And then I say, hey, Nick, how's the, how's the pit boss going? I can't get him online. Are there any in your Lowe's? I'll come get it. And he says, bad news, we don't have any in stock and we're not getting any more in stock because the new model's coming out soon. So we don't want to stock ourselves with this one. But good news is that there's potentially the display models, the ones on the floor could be sold for even oh cheaper goodness. the manager wants. And so then he gives me a call and says, I can get this pit boss to you for half off, $250. You are making money off of I'm this. I'm making money. Okay. So I got the pit boss. I got the cover. I got some pellets and I, out the door, spent about $13 of my own money. Wow. That was a wild ride. How incredible is that? <laughs> Wasn't that a wild ride? Aren't you glad I took you on that journey, that arithmetic journey? That's a wild ride. <laughs> Peter, one of the things I'm looking forward to after we can like all be within vicinity of each other yeah. is to end up at your house while you're cooking something. I know. We've heard about all these skills you're developing. I'd like to like be the recipient of some of these skills. Well, that's the whole goal. So it can <laughs> bless <know>. people. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like you've got a training period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, now I have a pit boss. I haven't used it yet, but hopefully by the time you hear this, I will have used it and uh, nice. couldn't be more excited about it. Love now it. I'm like a real suburban dad. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, that's it for the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chaos of what putting scriptural puzzles together can feel like. I genuinely do. And I hope that you do feel a little more clarity on this particular Galatians puzzle, that through it all, Paul is imploring this church to live into the reality that there are no identity markers that matter more than their identity in Christ, and that there's freedom in that, and that that life with Christ will produce the life the law was always meant to produce. And that is a heck of a puzzle. So Stanford, thank you again for hopping back on the mics to have conversation with me. And thank you to Miriam, my old friend. I miss you greatly. So good to see you. I'm very thankful for your short but profound journey into our lives. I'm glad it can live on through things like podcasts. So thank you, Kyle Jung and Josh Paskey for making the music of your pod and your staff. You are the goats of podcast music. And thank you to Heidi Rudvotes, who had to be the editor of this particular puzzle episode. Couldn't have been an easy task. So I'm feeling extra grateful for you this week, Heidi. So come join us next week. We are diving into Philippians, one of the great ones. And to close College Life, let me remind you that we love you more than Stanford loves hikes, Miriam hates illness, and I love the smoky, smoky smell of my new pellet grill. We'll see you next week.